0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, Dr. Stephen Graves, a medical physicist, and Dr. Anna Keese, a radiation oncologist, provide a primer on radiopharmaceuticals, including the mechanism of action, underlying scientific rationale, and clinical application of these agents in adult solid tumours. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Advanced Accelerator Applications International SA and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Dr Stephen Graves discusses the principles of radiopharmaceuticals for solid tumours, their mechanisms of action and biological effects.
1: So My name is Dr. Stephen Graves. I am a medical physicist and assistant professor of radiology in the Division of Nuclear Medicine at the University of Iowa in the United States. And today the topic of discussion is radiopharmaceuticals in principle, mechanism of action, and biologic effects.
0: How do we design radiopharmaceuticals for clinical applications?
1: The first step in designing a new radiopharmaceutical is identifying a biologic feature that is overexpressed on tumor targets. Often, this is the the result of of many years of uh, genetics and and proteomics and preclinical work, leading to the identification of a target that can be developed for uh, for drug discovery and for radiopharmaceutical development. So once a target is identified, the the radiopharmaceuticals for therapy generally consist of three main components, a biological targeting vector that binds to that target in vivo. Uh, as well as a a chelator that can be used to uh, conjugate and retain a wide array of different radioisotopes for imaging and for therapy. And uh, to bind the chelator to the the targeting vector, there's often a a linker, which uh, can be used to modify the overall pharmacokinetic properties of the radiopharmaceutical. So for example, making the linker a little bit longer would make the compound more lipophilic, more likely to clear by the hepatobiliary tract, and a little bit shorter would make it more hydrophilic and therefore more likely to clear by the renal pathway. So the other considerations with respect to developing a new radiopharmaceutical are: uh, what type of radiation do you want the radioisotope to emit? So we have primarily alpha emitters, primarily beta emitters, primarily gamma emitters used for imaging. We also want to consider the half-life of the radioisotope. So if it's too short, uh, a therapy compound would have most of its radioactive decay occurring when the, the compound is still located in the blood, as opposed to localizing to the tumor surface and decaying uh, proximal to the tumor cells themselves. And if the half-life is too long, although the the uptake in the tumor may be avid, the dose rate may be too low to affect a meaningful accumulation of, of DNA damage to, uh, to deactivate uh, tumor cells within the tumor microenvironment. So we want to think about uh, sort of an intermediate half-life for developing therapies, and we want to be uh, mindful of of, uh, daughter products. If the radioisotope decays to a radioactive daughter itself, we want to understand the biologic fate of those daughter radioisotopes.
0: What are the differences between alpha and beta emitting radionuclides?
1: So the, the different radioisotopes that we use uh, for therapy are either considered alpha emitters, which decay with the emission of a helium nucleus, these relatively large, positively charged particle, uh, or, or decay by beta emission, which is the emission of a high-energy electron. And these two types of radiation interact and in, in, in induce biologic effects in quite different ways. So the alpha emitter will uh, deliver its energy along a very short path length with, with quite a lot of ionization in sort of a linear track, whereas the electron, the beta particle, will have a tendency to sparsely ionize and travel relatively large distances between creating clusters of ionization in the body. And as a result, uh, the primary mode of DNA damage for alpha particles is induction of of double-strand DNA breaks. So a single alpha particle traversal of a cell nucleus is likely to induce uh, a large number of of double-strand breaks in the DNA as opposed to to uh, beta particles, which uh, will will induce small clusters of damage, uh, primarily single strand breaks that will build up given adequate dose and dose rate to uh, lethal double strand breaks. But it turns out that the mechanism of damage for low LET radiation is much more chemical in nature. So creating a free radical species is primarily the mode of inducing single strand breaks And these free radicals can diffuse and cause that damage to the DNA, but it can also be uh, uh, neutralized by uh, antioxidants such as superoxide dismutase or radical scavengers, uh, including sulfhydryl-based compounds. And then once those single strand breaks occur, they can either be chemically repaired or they can be uh, made more permanent by oxygen effects, or they can be enzymatically repaired. And so in general, we think of the, the high LET alpha radiation as being much more damaging per per unit dose uh, on the order of, of of three to seven times more potent in terms of uh, cell killing uh, in comparison with low LET uh, beta radiation.
0: What are the current approaches to dosimetry when using radiopharmaceuticals?
1: So a real strength of using radiopharmaceuticals for therapy are that they are inherently radioactive. And it turns out that you know radioactivity... Uh, is quite easy to detect and allows for uh, 3D imaging after administration of a compound to an individual. So for patient-specific dosimetry, the the typical workflow would be to administer either a small quantity of the therapeutic radiopharmaceutical or uh, to administer the the therapy itself, and then to uh, take that patient and and scan them with a, a spec CT scanner, single photon tomography, uh, a few times over the course of the decay of that radiopharmaceutical, generally um, scanning you know at, at twenty four hours, forty eight hours, and maybe a ninety six hour time point. And that data allows you to characterize the the concentration of activity in various organs and tissues throughout the body as a, a function of time. Uh, and based on that, we're able to calculate the total number of radioactive decays that's occurring in uh, in normal organs as well as tumor tissues. And That allows us to compute the radiation dose. Additionally, because we have the the dose rate effects, we're able to model the biologic effects of radiation, uh, thereby allowing us to convert between, say, uh, external beam radiotherapy dose treatment schedules and uh, the radiopharmaceutical dose uh, dose rate and dose effects, and and thereby allowing us to predict the, the biologic effects from the radiation and allowing us to patient, uh, patient-tailor patient our treatments so that you don't uh, exceed normal organ dose limits and you also uh, are able to ensure that you're able to get enough radiation dose to the tumours themselves.
0: What are the potential side effects and off-target effects to consider when using radiopharmaceuticals?
1: So although uh, radiopharmaceutical therapies are quite effective for binding to the cancer cells and, and the tumour microenvironment and causing the, the intended effect... There are some uh, uh, off-target radiation-related effects to consider. So because most of these therapies are injected intravenously and and into the blood supply initially, uh, the blood uh, perfuses the bone marrow, and the bone marrow, being a relatively proliferative tissue, uh, tends to be more radiosensitive. So in in many of these therapies, we do see some degree of of myelosuppression that is not uh, too dissimilar to other uh, cytotoxic chemotherapies. Uh, also, uh, uh, elevated radiation dose is seen in structures of uh, clearance, clearance organs. So the kidneys and the liver, which play a role in uh, removing radioactivity and peptides and and various compounds from the blood, uh, will will see an elevated level of radiation dose, and have been uh, have been observed as being uh, treatment limiting or dose limiting uh, in some in some cases. Uh, other tissues uh, of interest would be those that express the receptor that we're actually targeting on the on the tumor. So in some cases, there is some normal endogenous expression of the therapeutic target, and so in those cases, we have to to be mindful. Um, and so, in terms of normal tissue effects, um, you know, if, if the DNA damage is is repaired and there's sufficient cell survival, we generally don't see any effects below a certain uh, absorbed dose threshold. But beyond that threshold, the effects can can uh, can build up. Additionally, um, stochastic effects uh, occur whenever uh, normal tissue DNA damage is misrepaired. Uh, most of the time, DNA misrepair has no meaningful change in the biology of an individual cell lineage. However, it is possible to induce uh, secondary malignancies, most commonly uh, secondary hematologic malignancies, but uh, uh, late induction of solid tumors are are theoretically possible.
0: Why are radiopharmaceuticals suited to the management of solid tumors?
1: Radiopharmaceuticals have been quite effective and demonstrated to be effective in a number of of solid uh, cancer uh, indications, including uh, somatostatin receptor-positive neuroendocrine tumors, um, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma, as well as a number of ol- uh, other indications that have been uh, more uh, re- relevant for a longer period of time. In general, these these compounds are well-suited to metastatic uh, tumors because they are, again, a systemic therapy that can localize to small clusters of disease that are not necessarily visualized on radiographic imaging. Um, additionally, uh, the the range of the beta and alpha particles can be sufficient to induce uh, immune response to systemic uh, disease in the body. And therefore, uh, they are really quite flexible in treating a wide range of, um, of solid tumors, particularly metastatic disease, where a local definitive therapy is not a viable treatment approach. Um, additionally, there are a number of, of radiopharmaceuticals in development. So, although there have been about four therapies approved in the last 10 years, there are more than 50 that are currently in clinical trials and are being developed. And if a small number of those make it to uh, clinical approval, that really will significantly improve and increase the number of, of uh, uh, types of tumours that can be treated using this, uh, this paradigm.
0: Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. Graves. Now, let's move on to our next topic with Dr. Anna Kees, who will discuss when to consider radiopharmaceuticals in patients with solid tumours, and how the treatment landscape is evolving to accommodate different radiopharmaceutical modalities and entities.
2: Hello, my name is Anna Keese, and I'm an Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology and Molecular Radiation Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and a practicing radiation oncologist at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you for joining me today as we take a look at radiopharmaceutical approaches in the management of adult solid tumors.
0: When should we consider radiopharmaceuticals in the diagnosis and treatment of adult solid tumors?
2: Radiopharmaceuticals include agents for imaging, therapy, or both. Some agents are designed specifically for imaging, like gallium PSMA that targets the prostate-specific membrane antigen for prostate cancer, or gallium dotatate that targets the somatostatin receptor for neuroendocrine cancers. These emit positrons for PET imaging. Other agents are designed specifically for therapy, uh, such as lutetium PSMA or lutetium dotatate that emit beta particles or electrons that cause DNA damage for treating tumors. And we also have the ability to often directly image the therapeutic agents, such as those that are labeled with lutetium, using SPECT scans so that we can do dosimetry calculations. For clinical considerations, These agents are approved by regulatory agencies for therapy when they show efficacy and safety in a specific patient population, and there have been multiple recent regulatory approvals uh, for various cancers. Specific patients are actually often screened for the therapy using imaging that is paired. In development, there are many new agents that are up and coming for most solid tumor types uh, as most solid tumors respond to radiotherapy. The development of these agents and the choosing of specific targets is related to the relative uptake in tumors versus normal tissues. So. Biodistribution and pharmacokinetics play a large role in determining what the final absorbed dose is to tumours versus normal tissues and these absorbed doses are directly related to tumour response and toxicities.
0: What radiopharmaceutical modalities are available and or in development?
2: Most radiopharmaceutical constructs consist of three parts. It's the radionuclide itself that emits radiation, various linkers and chelators, and the ligand or ligands that bind to targets. There are a variety of different ligands that range from smallest to largest to include small molecules, peptides, minibodies, antibodies, and nanoparticles. And there are various properties that uh, are amenable to different applications with these different ligands. So, for example, uh, small molecules such as lutetium PSMA have rapid tumor uptake, rapid clearance from the bloodstream, and very good uh, solid tumor penetration. Larger molecules like antibodies and nanoparticles have often a longer circulation time um, and can have specific properties that lead to tumor retention. There is some concern for these sometimes for hematologic toxicities due to the longer circulation time. Antibodies and nanoparticles can be very readily engineered to bind to multiple targets. There are also microspheres, which are not ligand-targeted but are physically targeted due to their large size. They're uh, infused directly into specific arterial circulations and then lodge into the microvessels of tumours, such as in the liver, they can be infused into the hepatic artery for liver tumours.
0: What radiopharmaceuticals are currently approved in adult oncology indications?
2: pharmaceuticals have actually been in clinical use for decades with the first being radioactive iodine that is given orally and taken up into thyroid cancer cells and has been integral in the management of thyroid cancer for decades there was also bone targeted agents such as samarium and strontium that are used for have been used for bone metastases since the 1990s and early 2000s as well as liver radioembolization with Y-90 microspheres. In the past 10 years, we've seen the fruition of many years of development in radiochemistry and molecular biology to allow for more rapid development of small molecules and peptides targeting specific molecules for specific cancers. So this has led to the approval of multiple agents in since 2013. In 2013, there was FDA approval of radium-223 for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with symptomatic bone metastases. This is a calcium analog that is taken up into areas of bone turnover and emits alpha particles. In 2018, we had approval of iodine MIBG for advanced pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma that targets the adrenaline receptor as well as lutetium dotatate that binds the somatostatin receptor and is used for treatment of mid-gut neuroendocrine tumours. And then finally, just last year, we had FDA approval of lutetium PSMA 617 for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer that binds the prostate-specific membrane antigen and is also a beta emitter.
0: What's on the horizon for radiopharmaceuticals in adult solid tumours?
2: There are many agents in development in radiopharmaceutical therapies. For example, there are several agents that are in development that also target the somatostatin receptor and prostate-specific membrane antigen. These include other beta emitters and some agents that are labeled with alpha emitters, including actinium-225 and lead-212. Alpha emitters have a much higher... Uh, density of double strand breaks in the DNA and therefore have the potential to have a more potent tumor response. They also have a shorter penetration distance that may limit certain toxicities. There are also agents in development for many new targets for solid tumors. This includes gastrin-releasing peptide receptor for GIST, breast cancer, and prostate cancer, The fibroblast activation protein, which is expressed in the tumour stroma of many solid tumours, HK2 for prostate cancer and some other solid tumours and many, many other targets on the horizon.
0: What more is needed to support integration of radiopharmaceuticals into clinical pathways in adult oncology?
2: Radiopharmaceuticals are a naturally interdisciplinary endeavour and include the critical involvement of nuclear medicine physicians, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical physicists, and radiation safety. So there are certain complexities and needs associated with this. There's international needs in terms of the availability of radionuclides and specific agents and a high need uh, and meeting supply and demand. There's also international needs in terms of the workforce and expanding education and clinical training, which is part of why we're here today. And there are logistical needs for both patient care and for research in terms of patient care it's often related to establishing new facilities and radiation safety measures, to appropriately have radiation protection and management of radioactive waste. In research, there's a great need for investigation of radiobiology and radiation dosimetry for these agents to optimize their treatment properties and combination therapies. And altogether, these challenges are very worth addressing to bring these agents into the clinic for the treatment of our patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Keese, for sharing your insights on current and emerging radiopharmaceutical options in patients with solid tumours. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. This is the first of a two-part series on radiopharmaceuticals in adult solid tumours. Check back to access Part 2 and additional content on related topics on touchoncology.com.